Previously on Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. I'm so excited to introduce our very first guest speaker, soon to be Dr. Stefan Georgievich. My specialization is on military and cultural history. I'm really interested in studying the digital dimension of the current war in Syria. We can see how the internet and how mass communication has changed the face of war in general. Wars are being fought online as well as on the ground. Let's talk a little bit about the Syrian civil war. What is it? Who is fighting? Absolutely. Well, you asked who is fighting it, and that's a really difficult question, Evan. It's really difficult to identify all the combats of this war because they've changed. In different parts of the war, you have different factions coming and going. There's ebbs and tides. Now, what you have to understand about Syria, it's a one-party dictatorship. And it's run by a man called Bashir al-Assad. And for a long time, Assad and his father had been able to maintain monopoly on power by retaining monopoly on violence. And their strategy was essentially to oppress everyone equally, which in a way is a kind of freedom, wouldn't you say? <laughs> there you go. The Internet Explorers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. So today is the second of a two-part episode extravaganza. Evan, this is a really special episode. You know why that is? Because, <laughs> because this is the very first second part of a two-part segment that we've ever had. Every episode is a special snowflake, David. It really is. Uh, we're really glad to have Stefan on. We were able to talk about some really interesting and eye-opening elements of the war in Syria and just how the internet is affecting things that you really couldn't have imagined about our world. And in particular, we're talking about ISIS. This week we're going to get into in particular how social media like Instagram or Twitter are being used by people on the ground, by governments as propaganda, by various freedom fighters and, and factions, how everyone is trying to use social media to control the message that the world sees about what is really going on in this war. And also just how this is kind of setting a precedent for the way that social media in the future is going to be playing a really important role in who controls the information that we get about what's going on in war zones around the world. So this is going to be really cool. I guess let's get right back into it. We are rejoined with my good friend, Stefan Georgievich. Friend of the show. Friend of the sh Friend of the people. We want to welcome back Stefan. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me back. You were such a good guest last time. I know, so well behaved. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, so... I did my best not to spill anything in the studio last time. So you didn't, you you didn't spill back. anything, and you're much more articulate uh, than we are, and those are just great. <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we continue with a super depressing topic, guys? Let's talk about this, yeah. That's like every week. So we've been talking a lot about how the digital affects the global and sort of the international manifestation of this conflict. But I feel like we've not really discussed maybe how this affects sort of on the local level, how things are in Syria are being affected by this digital form that the conflict is taking. Does it, does it affect sort of the way that uh, the war on the ground is fought or perceived by people in Syria? Oh, absolutely, Evan. That okay. is... Uh... Uh, it's, again, it's a big question. Some of these questions about Syria are really big and complicated. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> so there's a couple of things we can talk about. Uh, we can talk about what the common people of Syria, how they're using digital spaces. And by common people, I mean people who are not themselves affiliated with a state or an ideology. It's people going around their 
everyday lives, Instagramming what they had for dinner. We can also talk about how other state actors are using Instagram and Twitter and other digital spaces. And finally, we can also talk about how these digital spaces are used by people outside of Syria to make sense of the conflict. Okay, yeah. And we can go in that order. That sounds and great. I think that's a good footprint too, yes. So first, let's talk about the people who are just live tweeting the Syrian war. It's a really long war, guys. <laughs> really long war. Yeah. Uh, if you, you could go through your whole puberty during the Syrian war. Yeah. And you could, uh, if, you know, if you were, if you were getting... Uh, if you're finishing up middle school when the war started, you would be just about ready to start college now. Mm-hmm. It's a war that for people in Syria has defined this generation. And what this means is they've known war, but whenever anything's so long, you can't just make your whole life about one thing. Right. It takes so much focus in a way to live through a war. Mm-hmm. Wars are draining. They cause... Obviously, the risk of death goes much higher. They cause want, scarcity, undue stress. Life is usually not pleasant in a war zone. Mm-hmm. And when people, they can't think about being in a war all the time. We have this image, we talk about wars in general, and wars are totalizing events. If a war is in a country, that war is everywhere. That war is going on day and night. And people are just thinking about the war. People are just living for the war. People are just suffering for the war. Mm-hmm. And that's not right. It's if we just can't concentrate on any one thing for seven years. Yeah. There's other stuff going on. So the first thing that I'm really interested in is how people are capturing a Syria that's in war, but their images are not of the war, right. of that genre. And that genre really comes forward to the most in Instagram feeds. Instagram feeds of people in Syria. And there's no one universal formula for you'll find in these images. Mm-hmm. Some of these, if you just look at sort of hashtags, the kind of hashtag they use is telling you which audience they are for. How so? So if you hashtag, for example, in English, that means that people who are doing an English language search will find your image. So the war in Syria hashtag is a very common hashtag you'll find. And, for example, academics writing about the war in Syria will use the war in Syria hashtag. A lot of Western volunteers who have gone to fight for the opposition are the Kurds. We'll use the war in Syria hashtag. People who sympathize with the opposition, journalists writing about the war, war in Syria is a hashtag that they use, most of all. So these hashtags are very easy ways to categorize sort of the source that you're getting this information from. And they are for usually Western audience because, English language audience, because the hashtag is in English. If you look at a war in Syria hashtag, it's almost always anti-regime. It's for the opposition. It's very politicized. So the images. When you say for the opposition, you don't mean for ISIS, though, do no. you? Okay. No, there's a shorthand. There's a shorthand nowadays where we differentiate ISIS from what people might see as a more moderate, legitimate opposition. Okay. Again, the opposition is complicated. Right. Right. Um, so images from Syria with the war in Syria hashtag are almost universally images of depredation, of destruction. Of, uh, of civilian casualties, of burning oil rigs, of destroyed infrastructure, mm-hmm. destroyed cities. They fit the generic image of this is what war looks like. Right. And they're usually done to elicit sympathy from Western audiences to send more humanitarian aid or to perhaps convince our governments to create some grassroots programs to actually intervene in Syria and help these people. It's generic. Some of these images are very disturbing, quite graphic. 
And what you'll sometimes find is they're usually then taken down by Twitter and Instagram because they break certain rules of the degree of... Uh, yeah, the, the terms and conditions showing violence. And For example, stuff. you you can't show nudity on Instagram. But one thing that I've found as a historian of war is uh, nudity is a very common image of wars mm-hmm. because mass rape is so common in war zones. And the kind of nudity you find these images of women who are raped and murdered is probably not the kind of nudity that Instagram is trying to govern against. Right. For lack of a better word, Instagram is trying to keep out sexy images. Mm-hmm. But these images, for example, are taken down quickly from Instagram because they break that particular bylaw. Mm-hmm. But as I said, the Warren Syria hashtag is, if you look at a hashtag, it's very clear that it has developed a kind of shorthand in the Syrian community and Syrian reporters' community. Then you can find later hashtags, just Damascus. Okay. Hashtag Damascus. I've looked, I've looked these up, and like I said, if you go on my site and we'll have a link to it, you can find a number of images. There's other people who are just showing their life in Syria. And if you look at their their Instagram feeds, you'll forget there's a war on. There's one Instagram feed I find fascinating. It's of a young artist. I think he's 26 years old. He lives in Damascus. Damascus is the seat of the Syrian regime. It's since the first sort of major Assad counterattack. It's been relatively quiet the last three years. A degree of normalcy has returned. And this Instagram feed, which you find a link to on my website, you'll find images of uh, you'll find images of children playing in the streets, of rolling dervishes, of fireworks, on parades for for New Year's Eve, of of bustling restaurants, of markets, and it's trying to sell this narrative of normalcy. To who? To who? That's interesting. I think it's trying to sell it to two two groups. Okay. One is trying to sell it to other Syrians. Keep in mind that geography is so important. Where you are usually determines what kind of images you're producing. Mm-hmm. Damascus is the center of the regime. It's uh, people who had, a lot of people who were violently anti-Assad escaped from Damascus and began the war because it was seen as the stronghold of the government. So people who are partisans of the government would create seemingly normal images of Damascus for, first for a Syrian audience to show them, well, this is what you're losing out on by not supporting the regime. This is what you're losing out on by fighting, yeah. by resisting. You know, look at life in Raqqa and Aleppo, these war zones, and you have these ruins. Look at life in Damascus, and you're Instagramming dinner. Very different image. Interesting. So so the difference between these hashtags are going to present a completely different ideology. Like, uh, just by doing hashtag Damascus, you're going to be seeing a more pro-Assad view of the world versus the war in Syria hashtag. And something just the hashtag Syria. That's, for example, that's a very contested one. Mm-hmm. In hashtag Syria, you'll find images that, like in hashtag war in Syria, are trying to show the conflict and to undermine the authority of the regime. Mm-hmm. But also, again, people just showing uh, peaceful sidewalks or what they're sketching. Right. Just uh, their supper or children which, playing in the street. Which makes sense in the sense that you're talking about a hashtag that is encapsulating the entirety of a nation. So you're going to have people fighting from the regime side saying, we're trying to build a narrative of this is what Syria is, as opposed to people who are on the opposition trying to build a narrative of here's the situation, things are dire. But it's not just, uh, it's not just the regime who's doing this. Mm. I, I don't think, and if you just, there's so many images that come, there's hundreds of new images daily under these hashtags, thousands over the last week or so, is it's people 
doing it themselves to put forward this narrative of Syria. Mm. They're fighting for what Syria means in these online spaces. My Syria, as, as a dissident, it could be the Syria of starving women and children and burned down cities. Right. My Syria, as someone who's just trying to go about their everyday lives, goes to his office every day, is the Syria of whirling dervishes and of comfortable picnics. So there, there's an aspect of performance going on here that I feel in the past was owned by governments producing propaganda or something like that, or, or at least like setting the pace of the narrative, like what's going on during wartime. In this case, we're seeing, I mean, clearly a much more democratized version of that where it's literally, uh, to be dramatic, like the battle is being fought over control of the signal. Basically what you're saying, where what we're getting are the people themselves Everyone gets to participate in communicating what the message is here, like what is really going on, what are we fighting for? Yeah, what's it's the an ultimate a, goal. It's an ex- ironically for a country that is so repressive and which has no democratic institutions. Yeah, it's, a it's funny, an incredibly egalitarian democratic debate. Yeah, it's almost that the citizens of the country are all combatants in d- building a narrative online. That there are, you know, whoever is on Instagram, they're fighting to present their view their view of what Syria should be and, or is. And not necessarily intentionally. Like they may not right. they may not be going out being like, and today I will use the Damascus <laughs> hashtag in order to present to the world, blah, blah, yeah. Right. And I think yeah. I think that degree, uh, David, as you said, there's this uh, we think of sort authenticity versus artifice. Okay, yeah. For a lot of these people, this is their authentic experience in Syria they're putting forward. Right. Yeah, no, I, I'm not saying that they're Almost trying to be devo- propaganda. Yeah, like, no, that's, I agree with you. And yeah. saying that is... We have to go. We have to get away at times from this idea of looking at images of war always being propagandistic. Mm-hmm. What digital space allow us to do is allow us to document our own experience. Mm-hmm. I think there are super rich sources for thinking about war in more complex ways, yeah. and that wars embody different kinds of realities. Right. And wars are much more bounded by space and time than we sometimes give credit for, even within one country or one city or one year yeah i think that's really what you get from looking at these sources is this debate about what syria is what life in syria is like what syria should be but also what is sort of what is this war for me what is this time for me Mm -hmm. and the answers you get depending on who you're trying to get them from are very different right some people are using instagram for explicitly political views but others are like one instagram i found of a french trained artist is he just puts his sketches up Mm-hmm. So you'll find pictures of little birds and of little children and of market stalls. Yeah. Because he just sketches what he sees and he puts that up on Instagram. But he also does that with a hashtag Syria. Mm-hmm. That's hashtag Syria. So is burning Aleppo. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about how these are experiential sort of, this is documentation of experiences that are actually happening. But So it's reflecting a reality that you have places in the same country that are radically different from each other in terms of their realities. So somebody living in Aleppo, the reality is that the city is being destroyed, whereas somebody in Damascus, the reality is that everything's fine. Exactly. And this is, I think this is really hard for people to understand about war. I mean, can I like reference the fact that... I think, yeah, I think I know what you're trying to say. For for I think our audience would like to hear. Right. So for for the sake of the audience, I I want to point out, so you were born in, in Bosnia. Yes. And you were present when, so the Civil War broke out when you, wait, how old were you? I was about two and a half years old. So a lot of these memories sometimes come from my parents. Okay. My war stories are stories I've heard about 
my parents, from family, friends. Right. So a common thing that you've told me is that as the war was developing, there was this really severe um, compartmentalization sort of thing going on where the war was always over in that town over there. Like it was completely different from our experience here. And part of what allowed the war to kind of sneak up on people was the fact that no one ever really internalized and believed that it was going on until it was already upon them. Is that is that fair to say? It's absolutely one of my. Uh, I can't call this a favorite anecdote, but I think a telling anecdote is my father tells me he worked in a town called Tuzla, mm-hmm. at a hospital. But he didn't live there. He lived in a little village about twenty twenty five miles away. So, and he was he was talking to some of his colleagues. His colleagues said they're putting up roadblocks. They're putting up armed roadblocks and barricades five miles out of town. Just in the opposite direction of the village my father lived. My father just said, well, that's 30 miles from where I live. That's a world away. <laughs> 30 miles. They're doing that in that suburb. They're not doing it in my suburb. Right. And it shows the ability of the human mind to compartmentalize and to try to shield themselves from the reality of a conflict. Because in a way, the oncoming, an oncoming civil war is a, such a terrifying prospect for people getting caught in its midst. Mm-hmm. It would cause you to radically reevaluate what your life is like. What exactly. If the person you're running into at dinner will suddenly be a friend or a foe tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So people are very good at shielding themselves away mentally from the reality of a conflict. That was literally a five-minute drive the other way. They were putting those roadblocks in. Yeah, 30 miles. <laughs> but to him, to him it was a different world. And to his colleague as well. Their story was, why are they doing that so crazy? Those people are nuts. We're okay. Uh... The town, actually, that my, my father lived in this time was, uh, by the end of the war, it ceased to exist. Wow. Literally every single home was demolished. Of, um, there were there acts of ethnic cleansing, and my parents who visited the town after the war said they recognized one family. Before the war, they were the only doctors in town, so they knew everyone. Yeah. They recognized one couple. Who still existed there. And that gives you, I think, the sense of People will feel like the war is far away from them sometimes, even when it's right next door. But in 1990s, when the war in Bosnia was coming out, this was a narrative that people told themselves through speech, through dialogue. But if you look at the source from series, you can see this playing out, virtual spaces. And how, uh, I don't know if you can know the answer to this, but how do you think, going forward, I guess, the fact that this is playing out digitally online, where it's much more available, do you think that would have an effect at all on that? That phenomenon? I think, well, first to say this little selfish as a historian, it'll give me a lot of great sources to look at in about 10 years if I want to write a book about this. I, <laughs> the yeah. kind of sources that I wouldn't have for a war that took place 20 years ago, like yeah. the one that me and my family lived through. But I think that, I think if people really take the time to look at the images coming out of Syria, mm-hmm. I think we'll get a much better understanding of the dynamics of war as experienced by individuals. Right. I think it'll really help that understanding. And it'll help document those experiences. And I think as historians, we'll get better at telling the stories of individuals and of individual personal experience of conflict because of digital spaces. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really powerful tool because history is really good at giving voices to kings and emperors and great generals. It's not always so great at giving voices to plumbers and to school teachers and to just regular Joe Schmo yeah. in the street. I think it's, it's, in a way, it's empowering for those of us who are trying to make sense of 
of these experiences, these lives, and these wars. Right. And I hope that other people in my profession will pay more attention to these kind of sources. So as we're getting all of these different like voices on the ground, just people, people are becoming reporters, whether intentionally or not. Just anybody can be a reporter on this event, and you can you can find firsthand accounts. Like, how's that affecting journalism? I think it's it's a revolutionary moment in the history of journalism, yeah. partly because traditional journalism has failed the people of Syria. Okay. And it hasn't failed it because journalists are bad. It hasn't failed it because they're, they're cowards and they don't want to cover this war. It's, it's failed in the sense that actually getting traditional journalistic coverage is almost impossible. What do you mean by that? I mean, you think of how the journalists usually cover wars. They become embedded with different units, or they seek the right to interview a politician. Is ISIS going to give an exclusive interview to BBC? Probably not. It would go up against their whole sort of modus vivendi, their whole view of BBC as a decadent Western institution that must be destroyed. Journalists don't have these guarantees of safety. To actually request, for example, the right to cover a war as an embedded journalist is, in a sense, giving a form of legitimacy to combatants. Mm-hmm. The f- view of a lot of agents of the U.S. government, a lot of people in the West, for example, is that Assad is an illegitimate agent. He cannot be trusted. News corporations are not willing to send their best reporters to try to get exclusive with the Syrian army because, in a way, it would say that Assad is a legitimate authority even though he murders his own you know, his own people in cold blood. Moreover, since the start of the war, more than 150 journalists have been killed. Syrian journalists or also International Western? journalists. Okay. Most of these are from the Middle East. Not quite just from Syria, but I'm talking uh, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Turkey, the neighboring countries. And this is why a lot of the major news organizations have been incredibly reticent in who they send. That's a massive risk to send your field journalists to Raqqa or to Aleppo with no guarantee of their safety. And also with whatever implications that they might have in being embedded with a faction that your own government doesn't see as legitimate, for example. The other thing you see is uh, traditional news outlets are using the kind of content created by these, I think it's all far too much called citizen journalists, but citizen documenters of the war in their own coverage. So a striking image that I found was the BBC in its reporting of the liberation of Raqqa. In, uh, in October of this year from ISIS. The, for me, the most striking image they had was a link to an Instagram account. It's, uh, the Instagram account is of a man who calls himself Peshmega UK. Mm-hmm. Peshmega UK is a former British, uh, office, British soldier who fought in the, you know, in the lead of the British Army and the equivalent of the British Navy SEALs, okay. who after retirement went to Syria to fight ISIS along with the Kurds. And he has about 250,000 followers on Instagram. And he puts videos, short videos, and uh, photographs of his time in Syria. Well, the image, the video that was used by the BBC was him after the liberation of Raqqa. This gentleman is from Manchester. He goes into an old, uh, at this point, destroyed record store. Because ISIS, as as we said, destroys all music, Mm -hmm. towns and occupies. And he plays an Ariana Grande song from his iPhone there. The Grande concert uh, was, of course, attacked this year in Manchester by a man who identified himself as an ISIS soldier. Coincidentally, it's also very well covered in the ISIS magazine for uh, June of 2017. Oh, yeah. Back in Manchester. 
So I think this, so this image of this British soldier, you know, coming to liberate Raqqa and actually playing the music of this young woman whose crowd was attacked was, in all the BBC's coverage, probably the most effective image it had of the liberation of Raqqa. Yeah. But that wasn't created by any traditional journalist. This came from this man right. trying to tell his own story and his own narrative of the liberation. Right. And he's obviously very good at symbolism as well, because let's face it, that was a pretty good story he made. It, it's a great narrative, right? Yeah. Exactly. But in the in the vein of talking about how this sort of gives a more authentic voice to the war, it's almost better than any BBC uh, journalist being there and reporting on the liberation of Raqqa. It's much better that you have somebody who has been experiencing it and is able to tell that story. Exactly, and that is another tool that we get from the fact that nowadays everyone has a cell phone. Right. And you can go viral with uh, whatever it is you're experiencing at that moment. Uh, The problem, of course, is always which people are giving, are you emboldening with these, this opportunity to give their story. This is particularly no, I would say, triumphant almost. uh, You know, I felt good watching this guy's video. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the videos that are coming up in this conflict are made by groups like ISIS. They're telling a very different narrative. It's also authentic, their quotes. Yeah. So it's this problem of, you know, whose voice do you sift through, which narrative to prioritize? That's difficult because there's so many people creating their own narrative of this conflict. Yeah. The only value you can give it to is it's authentic, and that's about it. Yeah, which does say a lot. Yeah. It is important that your sources are authentic, but in a way it can make it really hard to choose which voice is actually is worth listening to, which is sympathetic, which is morally right. So speaking of uh, speaking of voices who you might want to trust or not trust on Instagram, <laughs> one of my favorite Instagram accounts is the Syrian presidency account. I, I really hope he does it himself and he's just taking pictures of like... I'll order an airstrike. But first, let me take a selfie. Yeah. I like to think it's exactly as authentic as Donald Trump's Twitter account, which is just... <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, just totally unfiltered. Just unfiltered thoughts of Bashir al-Assad. Yeah. It's not, unfortunately. Uh, the, the, Syri- the Syrian presidency account is much more self-aware and much more responsible to the Donald Trump account. I'm pretty sure it actually... I going to say, it's not really saying all that much. I don't mean to make a moral equivalency because Bashir al-Assad is a moral monster. I, Let's no, be incredibly I, clear that I am in no way equating <laughs> Donald Trump as a president to Bashir al-Assad as, you know, a mass murderer of women and children. What a distinction I have to make. Yes. And I think it's an important one. So yeah. it's, uh, I, I think it's worth making those that. distinctions. Uh, so Bashir al-Assad's Instagram account is probably the clearest regime tool of legitimacy we can find a Syrian conflict. Clearest how? Insofar is it's a, it's a state-centered, it's a state-driven narrative mm. of the war, which is made through this platform that we usually think allows people outside of the state to communicate. Think of Instagram, Twitter as democratic platforms. Right. But it's that put into use of a state to drive a very state-centered, legitimizing narrative. And there's a couple of aspects of this narrative. Okay. So Assad can't really say he's democratic, because right. let's face it, he isn't. But democratic legitimacy is one type of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. The major narrative that Assad is trying to put forward for his Instagram account is he is legitimate because his Syria is the only Syria that could, in theory, provide a home for the different ethnic and religious communities. 
It's legitimacy based on plurality, okay. perspective of difference. So you'll find on the Syrian presidency account, and of a number of smaller accounts, which are frequently pro-Assad, constant images of religious leaders of Syria together. Okay. Most frequently scenes of funerals of Syrian officers and soldiers who died fighting for the regime. So in these funerals, you find an Orthodox priest in his black garb, sitting next to an imam, sitting next to... Um, might say representative of the government or a, or a French Catholic nun with her hair covered up, and sometimes with women in sort of when you think of his traditional uh, traditional Islamic headscarf, all seated right next to each other. And these images are used to sh- and the hashtags. They'll be in English, but a description will be in Arabic. Okay, interesting. What's that telling us exactly? Well, it's telling us they're actually made for both audiences. Okay. Hmm. Be- they're made for domestic audience to keep on telling this personality cult story of Assad and his regime and being ever victorious and tolerant and intrinsically better than the opposition, a moral standpoint. But because all the hashtags are in English, it means a lot, and a lot of these images have 20 hashtags. Okay. You can find them in any number of ways. Is they are pointed to Western audiences, to English-speaking audiences. Because they're trying to create a counter-narrative of Syria, a narrative that runs counter to what the Obama administration or the Trump administration have been telling us about Bashir al-Assad is a crazed maniac who murders women and children. Mm-hmm. So in, they're, in different, they're interesting because they speak to both of these audiences. The other thing you'll find in the, Assad, the Syrian presidency Twitter is how Assad's wife is captured, Alma al-Assad. Interesting, okay. She is probably the, the protagonist. She is probably the single public face of the Assad regime. His wife? His wife. Al-Mal Assad. British educated, British born, actually. Okay. Uh, and a beautiful woman, uh, by all accounts, very sophisticated, intelligent. She is kept about two-thirds, at least, of the images are of her. Even just alone, aside from Assad. And she is shown most often with school children, with representatives of religious communities. She's shown going to schools, uh, to hospitals, to, I guess, the Syrian equivalent of the Boy and Girl Scouts. Okay. Is that, is that a product of us, you don't want to be showing images of Assad necessarily? Or is it more that you want to be showing images of the president's wife because she, I don't know, produces some sort of image of the country or of the regime? Uh, well, if you just look at the color scheme, she's wearing white, for example, in almost all of these images, and that's a color which sort of codes for purity. Right. And, uh, sort of, and we code it for purity generally in analyzing images. It, she's quite literally the pretty face of the regime. Right. Bashir al-Assad is not an attractive man. He looks quite squir- squirmy and awkward. <laughs> man without a chin. He looks a little bit like Fredo. From The Godfather, yeah. It does look like Fredo from The Godfather. Looks like a Weasley guy. It's because when you think of Syria, I think the Syrian regime, Assad himself is the name that comes to us. Mm-hmm. This is trying to create the narrative of Syria beyond Assad. Right. And it's trying to implicate what it's someone who at first sight we would find the opposite and repulsive. And all these scenes are, I am confident, quite manicured for the press. This is your traditional propaganda imagery. Right. But it's not just sold to the Syrian audience. It can be sold to anyone. And you don't have to look for Syria to get these images. So, for example, one of my favorites, hashtag Throwback Thursday. 
<laughs> it's a lot of hashtags you will find. <laughs> it's on the website. There is an image of Alma and Mashir. Mashir, Anna. They're sitting on a lake. They're having a picnic. It's an image before the war. And the hashtag is Throwback Thursday. That's wonderful. And that's a, it's a very powerful tool of uh, propaganda as well. It's a Throwback Thursday. Remember when there wasn't a war? Yeah, maybe you guys <laughs> should be loyal. <laughs> that too. But it's, it's just interesting to see how, sort of how clear this narrative is. Let's right. push forward through. And how it's trying to put itself, to expose itself to people who aren't even thinking about Syria at times. Because it's so easy to find these images just, just stumbling into them. Right. And I think that's why actually the Syria and the Syrian presidency account, I really think, is much more for Western lookers of Syria than it is for Syrians themselves. Yeah. Most Syrians have already made up their opinion of Assad by now. It's interesting that even the decision to use Instagram at all, like just just to be on that platform adds a veneer of authenticity, like as if this is on the same level as the dude Instagramming his meal in Damascus or showing just kids playing or whatever is going on. Um, it's, it's trying to say that this message is like, it's just like those messages it, 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 it's to a certain degree, I think. And I think it's interesting because we've given, you know, Instagram, Twitter, these are new platforms, mm-hmm. but they already have a form of legitimacy to us. Right. They already have this claim to truth value because they captured a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't think that much about your Instagram post. That's why you have Instagrams and leadergrams. And yes, leadergram is also a hashtag you'll find a Syrian presidency account. But it's this idea that they're capturing the moment. They're not, they're not artificial. Mm-hmm. They are the truth. Right. And you're laying a truth claim when you put something on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the regime realizes that that truth is being debated at all times for a conflict. That's why it has to create its own version of the truth. Mm-hmm. It is fascinating, though, because to a certain extent, they are, this shows that they have to bow to this new, this new dynamic that's going on. I, mean, I, I think technology has changed this war for all parties. Yeah. Uh, it's fair to say that ISIS has been the most crafty mm-hmm. and the most successful in its use of technology. But every group in Syria is using it. Uh, it's not just Syrians themselves uh, or the different groups fighting directly in Syria. It's the great powers as well. Uh, think of reporting from the United States about Syria. It's used hashtags of Russia as well. All these different actors in the Syrian conflict are realizing how important the digital space is. Mm-hmm. The digital space is where these narratives are created, where these debates are indulged in, where versions of reality are put forth, and where really different truth claims are made about what's going on in Syria, who is righteous, who will be victorious, why is this war we're fighting for, and how is it being fought? I mean, would you say that in the past, control of the narrative has been a part of war? I mean, mean, clearly it's been a part of war on some level, like you need to keep people invested, choosing to fight, choosing to, you know, produce weapons of war, whatever is going on, like you have to keep morale up. But, like, how has the fact that, that war is over narrative online, like, how, how different is that than the way we've seen war fought traditionally? It's an excellent question. Huh? Hopefully it comes to a satisfying answer for you. You may not be. And I, your sorry. audience. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, I, that's just what I'm, I'm thinking. I, I think, think that it gives a lot more autonomy. Mm-hmm. I think it makes it a lot more difficult to coordinate propaganda. Mm-hmm. I think that also it, 
in a way, I would expect it to also make regimes a lot more accountable in the future. Because passers-by can document crimes so much more easily. And they're so much more difficult to police. Uh, since the start of war in Syria, millions of ISIS-sponsored, ISIS-supporting tweets have been taken down. Instagram images showing murders by ISIS, showing uh, the crimes of the Assad regime, showing the crimes of the opposition, have come down and come back up. It's kind of, you're playing, these platforms, for example, first, are playing vacuum with new information. These regimes are also playing vacuum with information and misinformation about them that's also coming out online. But again, whack-a-mole is so frustrating because that mole keeps on getting its head out no matter how many times you whack it. Mm-hmm. Just like keeps on bringing it back up. So I think one of the goals the regimes had in war was to control information. And I think that's impossible, digital age. Yeah. We have, you have let that genie out of the bottle. I think also the way public opinion, I think the way that public opinion is being debated and shaped has also changed irrevocably. Okay. Because traditional journalists and states can no longer control the narrative. Public opinion is open to so many more influences. And I think, finally, and this, I don't think, this is true of ISIS today, but I can certainly see situations where it'll be true of other ideologies that are conflicts in the future. Is digital spaces have allowed local wars to become global in terms of the stakes they're fought over. They have allowed ideas to infiltrate past any kind of uh, arbitrary lines, they are a product of globalization. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the future, I think governments will be much more aware of how to fight wars in cyberspace. And this has the dimension, of course, the hacking, I think, will be really important in coming wars. Yeah. But just figuring out where information is coming from, what, how war is documented, what face of the regime is seen, what face of war experience is seen, is something that will change how wars are fought, how wars are perceived, and how wars are written about by, not just by historians, by just people. Right. Like we'll see war in the 21st century as a different phenomenon to wars in the past. Technology has been the critical factor in that. Mm-hmm. Stefan, this has been an incredible conversation. I'm so glad that you have uh, decided to join us. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, guys. It's been a pleasure. This has been so good. I've I've enjoyed it so much. Um, Just hearing about sort of these phenomenons from the perspective of a historian is something that's, one, just enjoyable for me, but I think also enlightens the audience a lot about just sort of the unprecedented nature of the conflict and sort of the unprecedented nature that digital media has had on just the way conflicts will progress in the future. Stefan, you were, you were able to get both of us giddy about our, our own personal angles that we love coming at things from. Yeah. Evan from this historical bit and me from my, my internet bit. And I think, uh, <laughs> if you guys don't mind me having a yeah, final word a little bit, what's also important is we haven't really talked about sort of concrete numbers and very much in this conversation. Sure. But... As of now, more than 450,000 at least people have been killed in the Syrian war, probably close to half a million. Another 5 million have been internationally displaced, another 5 million internally. This has been the great humanitarian catastrophe of the 21st century. And the fact is, it will not end. At the current moment, more battles are being fought, ceasefire is broken, and I sort of encourage you and your audience to really sort of spend some time and look into this conflict and 
really try to understand how it's shaping not just digital spaces, but how it's really how it's revocably shaped the lives of millions of people at this point and uh, long-term ramifications it has on the region as well as abroad, I think is it's a good thing to take away from this conversation is to really make yourself more interested in this area. And it's more possible now than ever, really. Exactly. Just hashtag war in Syria. Yeah. It'll take five minutes. Hey guys, it's David again. Our show is over, but it's time for the credits. Evan and I decided to give the last word to Stefan there about what really is a really important issue. And thanks one last time to our special guest, Stefan Georgievic, for, for talking to us about what's really going on. I know I've said it before, but Stefan's a good friend of mine. He has a lot of passion for this stuff and is an excellent teacher. So we're so lucky to have him as our guest. Thank you so much one more time. And as always, thanks again to Something Unreal for his Windows XP remix that we hear at the top of every episode. And to, I'm going to butcher this, artist Perui for his song Revour, which we're listening to right now. That's, I have no idea if I pronounced that right. P-E-Y-R-U-I-S is the name. Perui, I think. And Revour, R-E-V-E-U-R. Check him out on SoundCloud. Uh, He's got a lot of good music there. I apologize if I absolutely butchered that. But uh, thanks a lot for stopping in, guys. We'll see you next time. Mm